Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Good day. My name is Stephen Fitzwilliam. I am Director of Human Resources for Henry II. My name is Towers Pocket. I'm applying for the jester position you have open. Fool. No need to start slinging insults around. <laughs> no, fool is what we call it. We don't call it jester. Where have you worked before? <clears throat> I just finished up three weeks at Chucklebutts in Essex, and before that, I was jester to the Duke of Norfolk. Do you know the Norfolk cheer? I do not. We don't drink and we don't smoke Nor. Stop that. It's a joke. Uh, tell me a different joke. What's up with these Norman conquests? I want to meet this guy, Norman. <laughs> Tis not funny. Be funny. So it's the Middle Ages, right? What came before that? The Isle Ages? When did the Window Ages start? <laughs> I don't get it. You know, Isle, Middle, Window, huh? Am I hitting home? Do you have anything topical? I do have an ointment I use for boils. That is not the kind of topical I meant. Okay, here goes. The king and his wife were happy for 20 years, and then they met. <laughs> I'm not saying Henry and Eleanor don't get along, but last week he told her to take up bridge. She did, and he pushed her off. Eleanor can be mean. Last night they had sex. He says, I'm done, and she says, that means my boiled egg is ready. <laughs> Why would the queen be preparing an egg for herself while engaged in her duty to conceive an heir to the throne? You know, boiled egg. Three minutes and it's done? I do not find this humorous. You're in human resources. When was the last time you laughed? Oh, sometime during the spring of 1156. Exactly. Thank you. You've been a wonderful audience. I'll be here all week. Try the roasted pheasant. Here's a show about fools and jesters. And now he wrote all the toilet jokes for Game of Thrones, Colin McEnroe. It's actually the wrong intro, but it's a, such a fun. I hadn't heard that intro in a long time. It's a very funny intro. It's not completely um, off topic. And in fact, we are going to mention Game of Thrones rather early on in the show. However, this is not a show about fools and jesters. We may have just alarmed our guest uh, into thinking that it was, but uh, <laughs> I think Garrett Carr sounds relatively calm. We're, we're going to do a show about walls and borders, especially about the psychology of walls and borders, because there's there are ways in which the way we think about them are very different in from the way from their reality in the physical world. So uh, a little bit later in the show, we'll be talking to Sergio Avila, uh, a conservation research research scientist uh, who is looking at what will happen uh, if a hard border, a hard border wall goes up in the Arizona Sonoran uh, Desert and, and areas around there. Uh, they're environmentally sensitive areas, and there are also areas where important and nearly extinct wildlife need to traverse a certain area. They didn't follow the 2016 campaign. The Jaguars don't know what's about to happen to them. Uh, a, little, a little bit later, we'll also talk to Michelle Stein. She's co-designer of Inflato Border. She is in fact, one of the people proposing a special border design uh, along that 2,000-mile stretch uh, that uh, that was talked about so much in the campaign. But right now, we're talking to Garrett Carr. Garrett is the author of The Rule of the Land, Walking Ireland's Border. Uh, this book records his trip, mostly on foot, 
occasionally in a canoe along Ireland's border between north and south. Um, so, um, actually, Garrett, I'm going to uh, alarm you yet further uh, and alarm our audience just by briefly playing a clip from the uh, 2016 campaign. Uh, this is after one of the debates. Uh, this is Donald Trump talking to Sean Hannity about borders. It's got to have We either have a country or we don't, Sean. We have a country. We have to have borders. We have borders. We have to have laws. We either have a country or we don't. And it's that simple. You know, Garrett, uh, one of the terms that I've heard you use is existential anxiety. And there's a little bit of existential anxiety in that statement, right? We either have a country or we don't. Uh, he's using that as an argument for a much harder border. Maybe you can reflect on that a little bit. I mean, w what, what's really happening when somebody says that? Well, I suppose the nature of national boundaries and how we discuss them actually really tells us much more about what's going on inside the boundaries. And it talks about the state of the nation. And at times of anxiety is exactly when you tend to firm up your boundaries. And it seems pretty obvious that it's often an attempt to, to compensate for that. So uh, there's a certain logic to that. I'm not against borders personally myself. I think they're perfectly fine. But it's when, it's when they harden up to the point of a kind of stagnation. That seems to indicate that there's something wrong. Uh, between the borders and the, the healthier ones tend to have a little more uh, flexibility about them and perhaps a little porousness. Yeah, I want to talk. I, I want to talk about that porousness. So, uh, I, we one of the places we discovered you. In addition to your book, I was listening to a show that I'm very fond of called Start the Week on BBC Four, and there you were on a, a panel talking uh, about walls. And what kept coming up on the show, oddly enough, was the wall in Game of Thrones. That, that there's this enormous, you know, t hulking, towering wall of ice and snow and rock uh, that exists to keep out the, the the barbarians, the wildings, and the White Walkers. And it, it's a very old school set of thoughts about a wall, right? A, a, a border wall, you know, nobody knows apparently what Hadrian's Wall was for, but we do know that things like the Great Wall of China, things like that. The, the notion wasn't really to control immigration or have little checkpoints where you looked at people's papers, right? The whole idea that was that someone was going to come thundering across the plains on horseback and, and overrun you. That's why you had a wall. Uh, yes, to some extent, although... Um with the Great Wall of China, indeed Hadrian's Wall, really, it's far too long to properly guard. So if somebody really wants to get over it, then, then they kind of can. There, there's an element where these are things are more like uh, political or even creative statements about defining a sort of a nationhood that everything beyond the wall is other and here we are, we are us. So you get your, you can get your frontiers people quite busy building these structures uh, and, and another and another uh, side effect, a useful side effect perhaps, is that uh, enables them to feel more coherent with, with whatever nation state they're in. So it really, it's got so much more to do with controlling what's inside the wall than keeping things out, I suspect. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's quite well known about the Great Wall of China for much of the time, the, the various dynasties who, who ran it actually controlled both sides of the wall. So what, what was it about then, but uh, just a kind of, definition of their civilization to kind of say this is what we, this is who we are so it's not just us in the benighted united states of america in 2015 borders and walls just burst onto the global agenda and mm. uh, austria bulgaria estonia hungary kenya saudi arabia tunisia announced or began work on new kinds of 
hard border barriers uh, that went on more in 2016 with Bulgaria, Hungary, and Austria expanding their fence lines. Norway's building a fence on its Russian border. Uh, the United Kingdom uh, is talking about a wall, I guess funding a wall in, in Calais. Uh, Pakistan building a fence on its border with Afghanistan. And as you rightly brought up uh, on that show, I mean, the Republic of Ireland has to make some choices in the teeth uh, of Brexit. So, I, I, you know, walls just seem so antediluvian and and Game of Thronesy. Why are we talking about them right now? Or, or have you already answered that question? Um, no, I, I do think there is something in the air. And I, I dare say it's been going for as well, and perhaps all of the century. I, I, when I started working on this project about Ireland's border, I was speaking to a friend of mine who said rather grandly, although I think quite perceptively, I'm talking about 10 years ago now, mm -hmm. she said that she felt the 21st century was going to be the century of the wall, or the century of the, bar of the border, mm -hmm. and that so much of the history that would be written in the century would be essentially about people who are trying, poor people trying to get in and rich folks trying to keep them out. And other, other kind of dramas and conflicts that are based around boundaries and frontiers. And, uh, well, I think she's kind of, looks like she might be right. One sense is that nationalism and ethno-nationalism has re-emerged with a vengeance. <laughs> and once that becomes the political discourse, then borders, boundaries and defences are, are never far away. But I agree with you, it does seem retrogressive. I haven't, I haven't seen too much positivity about, about uh, I, I dare say there are positive borders and I'm sure uh, uh, maybe some of your other guests will bring them up but it does it does feel regressive it does feel like we're just when things are starting to come together we seem to have one sense is a retreat certainly uh, UK's Brexit vote feels like that mm. but I, t I personally I tend to feel rather negative about that uh, Donald Trump's wall also has that air of uh, reduction rather than uh, rather than sort of uh, an optimistic future. Well, Garrett Cardew, in counter your book, The Rule of the Land, Walking Ireland's Border, is to become aware of the fact that when you harden a border or just have any border, one of the instant tripwires you're kicking is the human need for connection. Uh, so you create a border, you either militarize it or you don't, you harden it off or you don't. But the people who are living along that border, the people who might encounter that border, they, they see, there's a natural instinct uh, to want to get to the other side. And the people on the other side are also very interested in what's going on on your side. Um, you found 77 informal points of connectivity, points of connectivity that aren't really supposed to exist officially uh, along the north-south border in Ireland. Is it? Am I getting it right? Is it just sort of human nature to want to make sure you're not completely walled off from the other side? I guess that is true. Of course, if you visit, I suppose in the United States, it's the same if you visit a state line, and even if you're not going across that day, you'd sort of stick your toe across it anyway, wouldn't you, just for the just for the sake of it. Uh, perhaps there is something to that. I began walking Ireland's border not entirely sure what I was looking for. I knew I was going to make maps, though, and so certain elements started to present themselves. But one thing I started picking up on pretty early were these places where people had built unofficial, unofficial ways across the border. So it could be stepping stones and streams, uh, planks laid across streams. Quite a lot of the border is rivers, so a lot of them are, are small bridges. And then quite a lot of simple gates and hedgerows. 
and I started recording these along the way. I didn't bother recording the roads because they're already on maps. I just recorded these these ones that nobody else had recorded. And it started, after a while, it started to build up a nice way of actually portraying a border, of representing a border, is to look at all these little contradictions. And yes, one one gets the sense that there is some fundamental human desire that's simply been worked out. There's something on the micro level that the macro level can't really entirely register. One thing about many connections is that they're actually built by children. You'd quite often find that. So there might be <laughs> somebody's land leads down to a stream and then somebody else's land begins. And maybe the kids in both households are friends. So they put down a plank and they discover. Because adults, of course, would tend to go the official way or, or, or take a car even. It's the kids who find the shortest route and make it work for them, you know. Well, if you're finding Garrett Carr's voice and his perspective rather seductive, you can listen to Charting the Border on BBC Radio 4. Uh, we're going to play a little bit of that for you. This is Garrett uh, describing exactly one of these connections that we're talking about right now. And here we go, a connection. This is made on two logs, possibly something like telegraph poles that have been pushed down into the banks opposite one another and then laid with planks across the top. It's got covered in moss. Quite picturesque, I'd say. It disconnects uh, two fields. I don't think anyone would risk their prize bull on it anymore. It's looking like it might be starting to weaken a little bit. But I'm sure people still use it when they're visiting their neighbours. I See, Garrett, I think it is in our wiring. And the United States has found 150 tunnels under the U.S.-Mexico border since the 1990s, some of which are quite sophisticated with ventilation systems and even rails to quickly move carts along. I think we can imagine what would be in those carts. Uh, Israel has begun construction on a subterranean wall on its border with Gaza because there's so many tunnels uh, going, uh, going underneath the ground. So, you know, it, it, uh, one of the things that you point up, I think, is that there's also an enormous untapped reservoir of human ingenuity, which will respond almost instantly to a border, particularly when there's price differentials on one side of the border uh, from the other. In other words, if there's an opportunity to make some money uh, by exploiting the, the existence of something like that, you're probably not surprised to find out that there are rail carts going under the U.S.-Mexico border. Could you quickly tell the story about diesel? This is the one that blew my mind. Well, um, and so a key, the, a key date in Ireland's border, well, there's several, but there's 1998, the Good Friday Agreement, which started the peace process. But a really a very important one as well as 93, when Ireland and the UK and many other European countries also just joined the single market. So then you, uh, you didn't have tariffs for importing and prices across Europe started to even up. Um, and now, of course, with Brexit, we, we appear to be leaving the single market, so that gap is going to start to yawn open again. But uh, once once that hit, really smuggling, which had been a big part of Ireland's border culture, started to fall away because it simply wasn't worth it anymore. One thing that, that remained in place, though, was diesel. Because diesel, uh, individual states can apply levies on diesel themselves. So there's quite a big price difference between the north and the south. And then this, then that is, it's really an industry where uh, very large businesses, they're bringing over diesel from the south where it's cheaper and selling it into the market. But the first thing you have to do is you have to clean it because they dye diesel in Ireland green for southern diesel, appropriately perhaps, and <laughs> red for northern diesel. So you can, you can, you can tell if the diesels come from the other jurisdiction. And inspectors will do this. They'll go around to businesses and dip the tanks of their truck fleets, say. 
and uh, check to make sure that they're using the right diesel. So that's that's an industry at the moment. Now, apparently, I've only just heard, le- learned this this week. Apparently now, because the criminal gangs had worked out how to clean out the dye from the diesel, they're now using a transparent dye, <laughs> which can be detected by special sensors, but you can't actually see it with your eyes anymore. And apparently, the gangs have put out a million doll- a million pound reward <laughs> for anyone who can tell them how to clean this dye out. So... Uh, so yeah, it's big. That may be a little bit of a borderland myth, but uh, but uh, there are stranger things because it is it is a big business, and at the moment that's the only place really that you can sort of leverage enough for uh, for smuggling gangs to make money. Right. The, so, but we have to. I mean, just in terms of the human ingenuity part of this, explain how the gangs did clean the dye out of the diesel. Well, they were using cat litter and things like that, right? They're using cat litter, things like, yes, or sawdust, this kind of stuff that kind of satur- soaks it up and the the dye is removed in that process the nasty thing about it is and i don't want to i don't want to try and uh let these bio guys buy over wink like it's some sort of robin hood operation the biggest problem with it is is it produces tons of toxic waste mm-hmm. so all that kitty litter is, is saturated with uh toxins and they just dump them anywhere they can down laneways you can you might come across a couple of tons of the stuff just sort of dumped there so so it has some pretty nasty side effects, this business. That that would be the major one. And all the same, I don't think anyone's been jailed for it. They they, <laughs> they, they would bust operations quite regularly. I feel like you hear about a bust every six weeks or so. But um, but the penalties are quite low, really. So uh, I want to talk a little bit also about, well, you have um, several different maps. My favorite one, and it really does sound like a map from Game of Thrones, is called the Map of Watchful Architecture. Uh, and it includes uh, things like the first century Black Pig's Dyke, which apparently was made by a large black pig. Uh, um, and That's the story. Yes, the story. I don't know if it can be proven or disproven. But I, on a more serious note, you're... Um, old enough to have lived through different levels of watchfulness at the border, different levels of militarization at the north-south border in Ireland. And so psychologically, what's that difference like uh, as it becomes less militarized um, and when it was more militarized? How how does that sort of affect a person, you know, on a family trip uh, crossing from one side to the other? Yes, yeah, so this, this is the big story in the area of Brexit where, well, I should mention I grew up quite close to the border and we'd cross it before we went anywhere, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, and those days it was during the Troubles and it was pre-single market. So you had customs huts on one side, checking you weren't carrying too much of whatever, and, and, and a great big hulking military structure on the other side. And so it's a bit of a process. Crossing the border had its, had its uh, dangers and its intimidations. Uh, and I suppose, you see, when I was very young, of course, I just thought it was a bit of an adventure because these forts were populated by soldiers and there was guns and radios and helicopters overhead sometimes. And so it was all quite exciting. But for something like my father and I, it was always much more tense. I think what was going on with him and the way he was clearly very uncomfortable and unhappy about these procedures was that it was just really half an hour from our village and he felt like he should be able to belong everywhere around him and this the border i suppose fundamentally and this is a characteristic which share of many other borders is it told him that actually no you don't belong here you you don't belong on the other side of this line that that you that you've hit the limit of your identity here and for a lot of people in ireland that that, that was a major a major discomfort 
and uh, a sort of a challenge. And it was a big part of the reason why a lot of people in Ireland would never really cross the border. They wouldn't really just their lives would take them different ways and I mean there are many people in Ireland who never visited Belfast until after the Good Friday Agreement. So th- there was that sort of angst and challenge and emotional sort of uh, impact of of coming to the border that people just avoided. We on the other hand couldn't really avoid it and uh, besides things were cheaper in the north so <laughs> we, just had, we, we just had to do it to, to help us get by. Now you see the problem with what happens is 98, the border is completely soft mm. and you drive across it, you don't even know it's there. Mm. And that enables people then, that's that kind of porousness and flexibility I was referring to earlier. So, for example, I was just in a taxi here in Belfast a couple of days ago and I mentioned that my work on the border. And he says, the taxi driver said, ah, sure, there is no border anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was quite an interesting statement because it's not true. Strictly speaking, it is there, but it is faint enough that he can say that if he wants you know <laughs> and and he's not wrong uh he's only wrong in a sort of a technical sense so so that means the border is now more accommodating and people who feel their identities extend across it can do so and people who who want to be defined by the border can do so as well and that makes it quite a uh, that makes it quite a long-standing one and there's just one more point in that though the um the Good Friday Agreement started to, to soften the border in that way. All the military checkpoints were taken down and it became an open frontier. And some people started to talk about that as the border fading away. Like it was now just, you know, it'll be gone in another generation, it'll vanish. But I don't really think that's the case. I think it's actually, that's what will maintain the border mm. is the fact that it will no longer confront people in the same way. It softens, it recedes. And that's actually how it'll, that's actually what will enable it to survive. You know, it, it's interesting because I think there also is a, I mean, uh, for the people living their daily lives or even uh, their occasional lives near a border like this, I mean, the, that's obviously true that, you know, if it's an incredibly cumbersome, noisome experience to go through it, um, uh, that becomes kind of a problem. I think for those of us who are very occasional visitors to the border, there's a little bit of ceremony that we almost mm-hmm. miss. You know, I mean, I was bicycling around Europe a couple of years ago. At one point I bicycled into Luxembourg and had some coffee and bicycled out, you know, and I thought, well, something should have happened. (laughs) You know, the world should have noticed that Colin McEnroe went into Luxembourg and came back out. But but, you know, nobody cares at all about it. And and EU passports are very boring now because (laughs) you can you could go 20 years and not get a stamp. Right. Anymore. Well, things may be changed. Changing uh, for all the reasons that we've been suggesting. And if your friend is right, and if this is the century of borders, our passports may become more elaborate than we ever wanted them to be. Um, let's take a quick break. Uh, Garrett is going to be with us the whole distance. Uh, he has lots of other things to tell us about. Oh, I hope we get to the story of Barry uh, McWiggan. But if not, uh, well, you just have to read the book. And that'll be fun for you, too. Hot things go for you today. Don't you miss her Since she up then walked away And I'll bet you dread to spend another morning night with me But only walls I'll keep you company All right, we're back. We're talking about uh, walls and border walls in particular today. 
uh, our uh, guest has been and will continue to be Garrett Carr, the author of The Rule of the Land, Walking Ireland's Border, which records his trip on foot and sometimes by canoe along Ireland's border between north and south. I'm still laughing about the fact that we played the wrong intro. We did, in fact, do an entire show about jesters and fools, which you are welcome to look up on the Internet. Uh, Joining us now uh, by phone uh, as part of this conversation, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the ecology of all this. Uh, Sergio Avila is a conservation research scientist with the Arizona Sonoran Desert Desert Museum. He works in remote areas of northwest Mexico and the U.S. uh, southwest on wildlife conservation and research. And before we get to Sergio, you know, Garrett, your work set this up kind of nicely because in some ways, I mean, if you look at the border that you traversed, uh, you know, it, it is a meandering border, but it's a meandering border because I, it does it for the most part respect the ecology and the natural barriers of that particular stretch of land? Well, I suppose it does in a number of ways. Number one, you've got a thing called the Drumlin Belt. Drumlin's been small, round hills, and that extends right across Ireland. And that sort of sets the frame for the border. It doesn't follow it entirely. And then there are a lot of rivers. So like the Blackwater River is a fairly substantial river. Good for fishing, apparently. And then on the end, you've got Loch Foyle and Carlingford Loch. At one point, there's a really striking mountain, not particularly ta- not particularly high, mm. but a big long ridge called Quilka Mountain, which looks like a sort of a capsized boat. And it, and it, and it hugs that. And it goes right across the ridge of that. So there are a couple of points where it... Um, where it seems almost rooted in in the uh, in the environment and the in the geology of the landscape, is true. So uh, let's add uh, Sergio Avila to this conversation. Um, Sergio Avila, obviously, if uh, some otter uh, in Garrett's world wants to go from uh, north to south or from south to north, that otter is not going to really have any problem. But the kinds of animals that you're dealing with, many of them uh, on the endangered list or near the endangered list, um, uh, for them, this wall really does interrupt a natural habitat. Maybe you can tell us more about that. Certainly. Um, there are certain species of wildlife in, in the U.S.-Mexico border region that um, are finding in this region either their northernmost distribution, such as jaguars, ocelots. Um, these are tropical cats, very well known from the Amazon basin and Central America and southern Mexico. And there's other species that, in fact, find their southernmost distribution in this region, too, such as sandhill cranes who come from um, either southern Canada or the Midwest in the United States. So this region is uh, a melting pot of species uh, from temperate areas and from tropical areas. And any infrastructure that blocks their natural movements um, is basically preventing these animals from uh, colonizing new areas, finding new territories, uh, finding mates or finding food, and um, separating populations. Um, One of the things that uh, might ordinarily happen in a situation like this, if in fact you're going to harden off the border more, would be that there would be various studies of the ecological impact uh, of this on on wildlife, on natural resources, on the flow of water, whatever. But as I understand it, um, those kinds of things have been suspended, right? The Secretary of Homeland Security uh, has the unprecedented power just to not do that? That is correct. Uh, In 2005, uh, Congress, the United States Congress, passed a law called the Real ID Act. Uh, So as you know, Congress creates the laws. And in this case, the Real ID Act is a law 
that allows the Secretary of Homeland Security to waive all legal requirements um, to his or her discretion in order to ensure the expeditious construction of border infrastructure. This means that in the United States, the federal government passed a law that allows one um, appointed official to waive any laws. And this has prevented uh, public involvement. These are public lands, uh, and we have laws that allow public involvement um, and not only scientific studies to learn the baseline information of what species are present and what the potential risks could be or threats to these species, also mitigation actions that would help plan some infrastructure even better. But given this law that has been in place for uh, 12 years, now there is no scientific review, there is no public process, and basically we have lost the opportunity to study uh, the impacts and the potential impacts and, and future consequences of this infrastructure along the border. Right. So, uh, I mean, that that's a, another part of this, too, is that um, despite your best efforts and the best efforts of, of other biologists, we don't maybe even know as much about this area as we might know about other areas. I mean, there have been attempts to arrive at some kind of census. I've read 134 mammal, 178 reptile, 57 amphibian species within about 30 miles of the line. Fifty of those species and three subspecies are globally or federally, federally threatened in Mexico and or in the United States. But it is a little bit terra incognita, right? We don't even know as much as we need to know. That is correct. Uh, in any other project where the U.S. government is involved, there would be some oversight and public involvement, and it is not the case here. However, um, we have to keep in mind that this is an international border of 2,000 miles length. And so all of those species, all of those numbers are very difficult to know for sure. And even more is to compare where were those populations 12 or 10 years ago when this, the first infrastructure started being built to this point, and then how do we compare today with maybe the future in 10 or 20 years? And, well, the desert is not a barren land. A lot of people think that deserts are just... Um, wastelands, uh, kind of uh, sand dunes and all that. And, and we need to know that our region is very rich in different life forms. We have a lot of iconic plants and animals. People must be familiar with the iconic roadrunner. This is a bird that, even though it has the capacity to fly, it cannot fly over a barrier uh, that is this high. Um, and we have other birds that we assume could fly over it, but they do not, such as uh, pygmy owls or, or um, elf owls. We also have species, iconic species of cacti like saguaros that are home and food for many other species. So destroying the vegetation and, and destroying the desert creates a big impact that goes beyond just blocking wildlife movement by impermeable barriers. Um, I guess the other thing to realize, too, I mean, it's the basic statement of ecology that all of these species are, well, not all of these species, many of these species are interrelated one in, with one another. So there might be one kind of species affected by a wall or fence in a certain way, another species that has some kind of interaction in the ecosphere uh, with the first species who's affected in a different way and might be separated, right? This, it's, it's a problem uh, that, that kind of multiplies as you start to think about inter interconnectivity. 
That is correct. We cannot see the impact on the environment as separated pieces, uh, animals or plants. We have to see the impacts to the whole ecosystem. And one thing we need to know is that the impacts of this infrastructure go beyond just walls. There are also access roads. There are roads along the border. There are helicopters flying over. There are numerous patrols running uh, back and forth on these roads and sometimes in roadless areas. Uh, there are high power lights. There are generators. There are checkpoints. There are uh, forward operating bases, helipads. All of these infrastructure and activities create an impact on the environment. So we can think that if sections of the desert are being bulldozed and cacti and plants are being destroyed, then the homes and the food of some other animals are being destroyed. We are indirectly impacting um, other plants and animals that are connected to um, these, these forests or these deserts that are being destroyed. And a very critical part of this is also the impact to water courses and streams. We might be in the desert and we have small streams, but water is very important in our region. And uh, some of these uh, water courses, in fact, by national rivers have been blocked to the detriment of those uh, areas and causing flooding and causing bigger problems. And so uh, controlling water is not an easy thing. And this infrastructure has blocked waterways, creating other impacts like erosion and, and destruction, flooding, even in some urban areas, too. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how maybe this project affects people, too, the kind of people that you know, Sergio. But I also want to bring Garrett back into the conversation. Garrett, maybe the first thing I would ask you is, uh, obviously, you know, in your country you, and, and in Western Europe in general, you've all been watching this drama in the United States. You've seen the pictures of the rallies, people chanting, build that wall, build that wall. I mean, I don't know. How does that look from where you're sitting? Well, it looks retrogressive. <laughs> it looks. It, I have. I mean, it. It just looks like it looks like a lack of confidence in a sense, and uh, it's not that different really from. I mean, there are similar statements coming out uh, over here. I mean, Brexit in a way was a a build that wall movement. Not everybody was voting on on that, on that exactly, but that definitely fed into it. And uh, I suppose one thing the United States does is for the rest of the world is there is a sense of a kind of an optimism there that sort of hung around it, rightly or wrongly, frankly. <laughs> but of course, when Barack Obama ran for president, his tagline was hope. Mm. And I mean, and there's very few European leaders who kind of get away with that mm. and just having uh, that would be their slogan. You know, uh, but in the United States, you can do that. That sort of that sort of works. And uh, and uh, the build the wall is is the death of hope, mm. actually, and, it, and uh, so that I think a lot of people would sense it that way. The um is in Sergio. I, this is something that's very much present in present in Garrett's work, but I want you to talk about it too. I think you know Americans who don't live anywhere near the border. I think maybe they have this rather stark image of their mind that there'll be Mexicans on one side uh, and Americans, North Americans uh, on the other side and never the twain shall meet. I mean, in fact, you know, there's a million border crossings a day, legal border crossings a day. Right. For people who live along the border, it really doesn't necessarily seem like this. These two cultures completely walled off from each other. That's absolutely right, and it just, we just have to go back 100 or 150 years back, and um, 
Yes, these political boundaries are created by governments in order to, well, administer their countries and manage their countries, but they don't mean that they separate people. It is not like as soon as you cross the border, everybody speaks Spanish on the south, and then you cross north and everybody speaks English. There's people speaking both languages and, in fact, using both currencies on both sides of the border. There's people connected and families connected that have been there even before there was a border. Um, and so, yeah, these, these political lines don't mean that we create this black and white division. Um, it, is more, it is more of a transition. And um, I would say that clearly in southern Arizona, the, the influx of people from Mexico coming um, for economic reasons, in fact, just shopping on the weekends, is an economic incentive for Arizona. We do need people to come to the state and, um, uh, and, and, and go shopping, and it is part of our economy. Uh, the other part that's very important about this is that nature has no borders, so those political uh, lines really don't matter for a jaguar or for a monarch butterfly that are not carrying a passport, and they just are moving in places where they can find their water, they can find their mates, or they can find their food. And uh, that is the perspective that we are trying to bring uh, here at the Desert Museum. All right. We're going to have to take a break uh, here. Thanks so much to uh, Sergio Avila. We're going to talk about sort of creative things that people do with these walls or propose doing uh, with these walls. I think Garrett has a story or two. And uh, we'll talk to someone who's proposing something kind of creative for the Mexican-American border. All right, Kion Wolf is still not fully back with us. I don't have her to say all the thank yous today, so I will say them. First of all, this uh, show was conceived and produced by uh, one of our very outstanding interns. She is Alexandra Oshinsky, a nice Irish name, Oshinsky. Uh, and uh, she was ably assist assisted by Jonathan McNichol, who really does have an Irish name. Uh, Betsy Kaplan is on the board today uh, until we get Wolfie fully back with us. Uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by Tom Snout, the tinker. And if you think about walls, you'll see what I did there if you know your Midsummer Night's Dream. All right. So um, and tomorrow we are this is a show we've been working on for quite some time. Uh, we uh, Betsy and I got really interested in the idea that people got either mentally or physically ill as a result of the 2016 election. That people were really complaining uh, not only of mental and psychological stress, but but of actual physical stress. Um, and we began investigating that and collecting stories and consulting epidemiologists and experts. And uh, the show that uh, results is the one that we'll, you will hear tomorrow. But right now we're talking about the border. Uh, we're going to add uh, one more guest to this conversation. Uh, before I bring her aboard, well, this is the oddest thing. We actually were doing some work on, on tomorrow's show, and we wound up talking to this t guy, Tom Gatto, uh, who is a designer. Uh, and it turned out that he had with him some designs. It, he's one of the people submitting designs for the border wall. Now, some of the people submitting designs really want to get the contract. Some of the people submitting designs, I think, want to make a point. Tom is probably in that latter category, but let's hear what he says. The wall I have in mind would offer uh, 
water and sewer services and uh, irrigation line and electrical lines, solar panel. Uh, it all sounds expensive, but actually it's really not that much expense. And the idea is that we could create a corridor of uh, housing or development or living along the parts of the wall that installed this part, this design. I have um, brainstormed and listed a number of ways in which the wall could uh, throw off uh, benefits, uh, first of all, water and sewer uh, and flood control. Um, but then also if it had uh, you know, cable TV lines and uh, fiber optic communication lines uh, that would provide services to the residents. And then you could have um, lighting along the wall uh, and security cameras, of course. And the thrust for me has been, how can I uh, put value added, bring value added services uh, and that are not obvious? and and have that be a continuous process. And so um, bringing culture to the wall, uh, that things that might be printed on it might be tribal history, and cuisine, and recipes, uh, historic figures, photographs, uh, history of technology, so that if you uh, rode a bike along the wall or walked, uh, you could explore uh, topics as you walked along. All right, so Tom is one of the people who's lo uh, looking at that building uh, the border wall competition. Um, it's uh, people are trying to do all kinds of things. Uh, Pennsylvania-based Clayton Industry was, wants to hide, hide our nuclear waste in the wall. I'm not sure that's a good idea. Uh, Las Vegas, Nevada-based Gleason Partners want to build wants to build a wall to power most of the state of Texas using solar panels. Tom's got solar panels uh, up on his wall, uh, but other people ha have kind of. Uh, proposed counter-narrative uh, wall ideas, wall ideas that almost amount to a civil disobedience, walls that really would work in a very different way and uh, might uh, create connections more than walling one side off from the other. We're going to talk to uh, Michelle Stein. Garrett's also got uh, some good stories from along the border. We're going to swing back uh, to him and get one of those. But uh, Michelle Stein is a co-designer of Inflato Border, an inflatable, adaptable construct that encourages flexible shared spaces in the U.S. Mexico, Mexico border. Uh, Michelle Stein, welcome to our conversation. Hello, thank you. I, I feel as though the people who are uh, chanting build that wall, build that wall uh, to Donald Trump, they, they don't want uh, flexible shared spaces at the U.S.-Mexico <laughs> border. Am I missing something here? <laughs> yeah, I think um, our proposal for the border was actually to suggest something that was um, not a wall at all and trying to counteract those um, chants. So I'm picturing kind of a bouncy ca castle here, but uh, so but what is the inflato border? What is it going to be if it yeah. ever happens? So um, our design was a series of inflatable spaces that could adapt to host a variety of functions and accommodate um, the ever-changing needs and desires of the neighbors in the area. Um, but really, I think it was more 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 importantly, um, it was intended to represent the larger com conversation um, to challenge the ways that we think about borders. So um, in a sense, confronting the divisiveness of a wall and suggesting an alternative, more productive um, border space. So as a, as a wall, um, 
would tend to divide, I mean, it always divides and separates. And so instead of doing that, um, the inflatable border brings people together in shared spaces. Um, and instead of being an immovable monolithic wall, which is um, also very expensive, our proposal suggests a series of temporary adaptable spaces that um, can better meet the needs uh, of the diverse geographies and communities that are also constantly in flux and changing. So, Garrett, as you're listening to this, uh, you may be reminded of um, any number of things, but I'm assuming you might be reminded of John Brine, a Belfast-born artist who made the uh, Border Interpretive Center. Uh, very quickly, Garrett, tell us, uh, tell us about that. Yes, I suppose he was one of the things that inspired me, but that, that was probably in 1990. He took a very small hut, which already happened to be there, built right on the borderline on the, on the main Belfast-Dublin road, and he fought... Uh, suppose we just uh, made an interpretive centre here. Suppose, his, his key idea was to turn the border into an attraction rather than a, than a place that people wanted to uh, ignore or get across as quickly as possible. And if an attraction needs an interpretive centre. So he opened that there and uh, he sold T-shirts and all sorts of uh, souvenirs from it. It was all a bit of a, it was a, bit of a performance art piece, really, uh, because on hills nearby there were big military watchtowers and helicopters flying overhead. I mean, it wasn't really that conducive an atmosphere. But now when I, I so I, I thought that was quite a witty joke, you know. But now when I walked the border, of course, all that military architecture is gone. And I sort of started to take the joke quite seriously. There's actually some quite attractive places along it. You were t t thinking about Sergio's comments there about the uh, Mexico border. See, in Ireland, it's kind of, it's almost the opposite. Because it was associated with war and danger and smuggling for so long, it's actually weirdly sort of protected it. So there's not too many buildings on it. There's a lot of open space. There's a lot, quite a lot of wilderness. I don't know if wilderness is quite the right word for Ireland. It's not really big enough to have expansive wilderness. <laughs> but uh, there are lots of open spaces along the border. So the, the, the putting the border down actually kept it open and uh, and uh, sort of untouched in a way. And now it's it's some... I, I mean, I walked sections of it that I was really uh, surprised by the beauty of it. So, Michelle Stein, uh, you know, I was uh, in Palm Springs last December at this uh, conference that was at a resort. And as I was walking around this beautiful resort, I kept encountering signs that mentioned the HOA and telling me not to do various things unless I'm part of the HOA. And I couldn't figure out what the HOA was. Well, it turns out to be the Homeowners Association. And this is something that you've looked at, too, the way that, I mean, not just at borders, but in general, in urban environments, suburban environments, people are constantly trying to kind of mark off spaces in in, in rather kind of prissy and bossy ways. Was that part of what made you want to do the inflatable border? Exactly. Um, I think the, the notion of creating space that is secure and private and um, spaces that we can control, I think that's um, just in a way a natural response to any sort of dangers. And so over time, like we've built up either whether it's a gated community um, or you, even going back to medieval fortresses and how cities have um, built walls around them to keep others out. Um, and, I mean, today also the um, Israeli-Palestinian border. There's just, I mean, so many different um, conditions where architecture or the built environment continues to divide um, at many different scales. And... And I think um, it all comes back to kind of this desire to um, control our environment and, and 
um, protect ourselves, um, but in fact it actually ends up um, creating a very fragmented um, like landscape and um, and also it just changes how we or influences how we view anybody outside of that wall or on the other side. Um, have you picked a color for the inflatable border? I picture it being <laughs> uh, nice, nice colors. Yeah. Well, um, in our drawings, we represented it as uh, purple, but really, it could. I mean, the idea behind it is that it could could take a number of different forms, and depending on materials that are available, it could. Um, it could be a number of different things, but the idea is that it could adapt to the different conditions and people can really make it what they want it to be. All right, we are pretty much out of time. One thing I do want to say as uh, we head towards the end here is, you know, it's one thing to talk about building a wall. It's really hard to do, uh, particularly as you go over a, a tumbling, rambling, differentiated landscape, which that 2,000-mile uh, Mexico-Texas border is. Uh, one cautionary piece that I would offer to anyone who thinks that this wall is going to go up in a trice uh, is that the construction of the West Bank security barrier, which is the, one of the most talked about walls probably in the world, in the modern world anyway, has been mostly frozen for nine years, even though 36 percent of that wall has yet to be completed. Um, and it's not likely to com be completed in the near future. Netanyahu can't find any way to get that done. It's hard to build walls. And then, as we pointed out before, people just tunnel under them anyway. So, uh, And that's a good thing. I mean, people, you, one of the ways that we grow intellectually and as a society is by contact with one another, by human friction. So uh, thanks so much for uh, the contact that we got. Thanks to Ali Oshinsky's great producing, uh, Michelle Stein, uh, Garrett Carr. Garrett Carr's book, Rule of the Land, Walking Ireland's Border, is a must, particularly for those of us planning to go to Ireland again very soon, which is like most of us who work here, it turns out. Uh, also, thanks so, so much to Sergio Avila as well. And we'll be back tomorrow. We build a wall, we build a wall to keep us free.